Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today's guest does animations with critiques and commentaries on TV shows and movies. He's hilarious, humble, and been homeless in Japan. Alex Myers, welcome. Okay, so I wanted to start with the fat kid mentality. (laughs) Okay, sure. I love that you said that because you have like 2.4 million subscribers now and I watched your video that you made of when you were like three years in, and I was wondering if that fat kid mentality is still in effect. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's probably true for like a lot of things, you know, when you grow up a certain way, whether it's like a certain economic situation or maybe, you know, like growing up as like a fat kid or growing up as something, right. It kind of sticks with you pretty much forever. I feel like growing up as a fat kid, like I was a pretty skinny kid until probably like, I want to say like middle school-ish, and then the whole teen angst, depression set in, and I was like, you know, oh, e- eating food makes me feel good for a little bit, I guess. And then, well, actually, that's also when I discovered that like with ice cream, there's like that chocolate shell stuff you put on top, and it like hardens. I discovered Dairy that. Queen, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I discovered that when I was like 12, and then it was just that and mozzarella sticks, and it was just all downhill from there, you know what I'm saying? So I was really fat. Pretty much all through middle school and high school until the very end of high school, the summer before my senior slash junior year, because I skipped a year of high school, I graduated in three years. And so the summer before that, I was an exchange student in Okinawa for six weeks over the summer. I grew up in Iowa, and in the Midwest, a lot of people are pretty chunky, you know what I'm saying? And so I was like maybe average, I suppose. I didn't really realize how kind of big I was until I went to Japan. And then I was like, oh, goodness. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I'm like three of these people put together. So I was like, okay, I got to lose weight. So I ended up losing a bunch of weight. The first six months of my last year of high school, I think I dropped like 70 pounds or something like that. I got down to like 130 something and I was about 200 something around this. Yeah. So I dropped a ton of weight. What I did is, this is so funny to think now. What I did is I would wake up at like five in the morning and I would play, <laughs> I would play Dance Dance Revolution on the PS2 for like an hour straight. There's like an endless mode on whatever version I had of the game. It's like an endless mode where you just went and it would calculate your calories, sort of. Probably wasn't accurate, but it would give you a number to, to base your calculations off of. And I would do that for like an hour straight. I would burn, allegedly, like a thousand calories at five in the morning. And then I would eat barely anything at all. Not healthy, but it worked. So do with that information what you will, I suppose. And even after I've dropped the weight, and now here I am at 32 and like I work out a lot. I think I have a pretty decent physique, but it's like when I see myself in the mirror, I see me as I am. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't look so bad. But when I think of myself in my head, I imagine the fat kid at 15, like always. I wonder if that ever goes away. I don't know. I mean, well, as people get older, typically like, you know, the body starts to kind of, people get a little heavier and you gain weight, your metabolism slows down. So I think people just kind of care less maybe as you get older or we pretend like we do, but we still care. But like, I don't know. Cause I mean, like I said, here I am at 32 and I just, 
I, I still see myself that way. I still think of myself as like the fat kid that like every girl friend zoned or whatever. So it's like, it's kind of just always there. It's always like a little nagging voice in the back of my head. It's so interesting. And I also really loved when you were talking about how when you were a smaller YouTuber and you were just starting out, you could make videos about anything. You were even saying up until like 20,000 subscribers because you were still able to like be creative and try new things. And now that, you know, you have all these subscribers, you feel like you know what resonates with your audience and you feel more like you have to deliver that. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, for YouTube, especially that's true. And I feel like that's true for anyone who does anything creative. Yeah. When you're small on YouTube, like everyone wants to get big as soon as possible, which is understandable, obviously. Like, you know, anyone who, anyone who's an actor, they want to have a smash hit movie. Anyone who's a singer, they want to get in like the billboard top chart, whatever. So it's like, you want to get big right away. But like when you're small, you can do, like I said, and like you just repeated, like whatever you want, because relatively speaking, no one's watching. And like, that's not true, but it's like, yeah, you know, you know maybe you're going to get like 10 views. Maybe you're going to get 50 views, maybe a hundred views if you're like lucky. Right. And so you can kind of just do whatever. Like, you know, I've been on YouTube now for over five years, coming up on five and a half pretty soon. Yeah, the first two and a half years of doing YouTube, like barely anyone watched. At the beginning, I was doing a whole bunch of random stuff, just totally random. I was doing vlog stuff, doing like ranting video stuff. I was doing little skits. I was doing like fake movie trailers, just like all, a whole bunch of stuff that is now all gone because no one needs to see that. But when I started doing the video essays, those kind of picked up a little bit. I went from like, maybe 2,000 subscribers to about, yeah, 20, 30,000, 25,000, something like that. And even at that size, now, you know, 20,000 subscribers is nothing to shake a stick at, but in the grand scheme of YouTube, like it's not really big enough to have you be like established yet. It's like people are starting to notice you, but you're still small enough that you can do whatever you want. And so because I was small enough that I could make a dramatic shift, I switched over to doing the animation stuff I do now. Now that I'm as big as I am, which is certainly a lot bigger than it used to be, but not that big in the grand scheme of YouTube because, you know, there's some people with like 20 million subscribers, whatever. But now that I'm the size that I am, it's like, yeah, the, the audience, they, they have expectations now. They, they're like, they want a certain type of video, a certain way, a certain kind of voice, a certain kind of whatever. And my ability to kind of try new things and stuff, it, it feels to me like it's sort of stifled a little bit because it's like, no one's going to watch it. No one's going to care. They're like, I, I want the funny cartoons. Give me the funny cartoons. At the same time, I like to think that the reality is that maybe I could do something new and people would, would appreciate me like trying new things perhaps. But it feels not suffocating, but it just feels like, oh, this is what I have to do now. I have to do this thing. And if I deviate from it, then like, oh, my, my, my channel could like disappear. My channel could die. Because it's happened before. It feels like you can't be as creative or you can't, not as creative, but you can't take as many risks, I feel like. Because uh, when you're a small channel, it's, everything's a risk. You're just trying random stuff. You're throwing everything at the wall. Whatever sticks, I'll, I'll try that again, you know. Like with me, I did my video essays and they did okay. And then I did my very first cartoon about Riverdale and that one just exploded, like overnight. And so then I was like, okay, I'll make another one and then another one. And then that sort of became my thing now. In a roundabout way to answer your question, it's like, yeah, when you're small, you have a lot of creative freedom, I should say. Hopefully you have creativity or else why are you doing YouTube? The idea is like you want something to stick. You want to have like your thing. Like all, I'm the cartoon rom-com guy or whatever. But then like once you fall into that, it's kind of 
hard to get out of it if you decide that like you're tired of doing something. Have you talked to other YouTubers about that? No one in particular. I'm not really close friends with any other online creators. Not really sure why, but just, just I'm just like not. YouTube drama is like a huge thing where it's like one YouTuber does and says something bad and then all their friends kind of get wrapped up into it. Like, how can you be friends with a person who says this or whatever like that? I was like, you know, what if I was just not close friends with any YouTubers and then they can all say whatever they want to say and it doesn't blow back on me. And so I haven't spoken to other people directly about it, but I have seen like people go through that. That makes sense. Have you had other YouTubers reach out and like want to collaborate? I mean, a lot of smaller channels, of course, want to collab with big, like bigger channels. When you're an up and coming YouTuber, like one of the things that you hear and you sort of see a lot is like, oh, if you do collabs, then that's a great way to like grow your channel. You know, you collab with a big YouTuber and then you'll just instantly be a big YouTuber as well. And that's like the secret, the secret sauce. But my point of view on that was always like, I feel like if my content doesn't stand on its own already, then like no amount of collaborating is going to like change that. You know what I mean? Like I would like for me, I've never collabed with any other YouTubers at all. I've collaborated with some like actors and actresses like Christy Carlson Romato from Even Stevens. I work with Cameron Kennedy from my baby series of Vampire. I've, you know, I've spoken with and kind of worked with a couple of those people, but I've never collaborated with any other YouTubers for the main reason that like I want my audience and my niche, my corner of YouTube, whatever, to just be like 100% mine. For example, you know, Jack Septicai, who I'm sure everyone knows, he got big initially because he collaborated or he got a shout out from PewDiePie way back in the day, like 10 years ago or something like that. And so even now, he's made a couple of videos about this recently, but like even now he still gets people being like, oh, you're only famous because PewDiePie shouted you out eight years ago or whatever it is. And so like, you know, if you collab with someone and then you get like big off of them, then people will always kind of hold that over you. I totally agree with that, actually. And, you know, I've interviewed people that have 2 million subscribers and just because they're willing to be on my show doesn't mean that they're going to share it with their audience. <laughs> I think uh, it's the same thing with even building a podcast, right? Like, mm -hmm. do you interview people who you're curious about and who you really want to know their story? Or do you just really try to go after people that will potentially share you with their audience? Like, I've even talked to people that can get you like in Business Insider and Inc and Entrepreneur Magazine. And they're like, oh, if you're featured here, then, you know, this person and this person will want to be on your show. And I'm like, but do I really want to interview that person? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's kind of the same with me when I pick and choose what movies or TV shows I talk about, because like, you know, I know what all of the big ones are like, oh, it's a brand new show, whatever's popular now, I should probably make a video about that at some point. Like, for example, as of recording this episode, the day after tomorrow, the sequel to the movie After comes out on demand. And After was a, it was one of my bigger videos, but it's like a really just, just cheesy, horribly corny romance, like teen romance movie, where like this girl falls in love with this British guy. Anyway, the sequel is coming out on Friday, which is two days from this recording. And so obviously it's okay. When that comes out, I got to do it right away because people are going to be looking forward to it. It's going to be in the zeitgeist or whatever. I have to do it. But like the video I just put out a couple of days ago was about uh, this old 90s Australian kids show called Round the Twist, which is just the most horrifying, like just the most like, like traumatizing kids show you'll ever see in your life. Now, 
no one's really heard of that show because it's a 90s Australian kids show. Like not a lot of people know about it. But I was like, I have to do this because it's so just like, I need to share my pain with the world. You know what I mean? And so again, like, like you just said, it's like, you know, do you interview someone that you genuinely are interested in, but other people might not even ever heard of them? Or do you interview someone that everyone knows that maybe you don't, I mean, you know, maybe not that you dislike them, I assume, but that, you know, it's just someone that's maybe going to get your foot in the door. It's more of a business decision rather than a creative decision. And so for me too, it's like with my videos, it's like some of them I do, I'm interested in everything that I do to varying degrees, but sometimes it's like, oh, I have to do, if this show just came out and it's, it looks like whatever, whatever, but like, I guess I'll make a video about it because it's popular now. And then sometimes I pick a video where it's like, this video probably won't perform well, but I really want to make a video about this particular TV show. I feel like you have to kind of find a balance between those two. So the audience gets what they want. And then they also get things that they didn't know they wanted. hundred percent. How do you communicate with your audience? I used to be pretty active on Twitter, although I recently kind of hit this point where I was just like, why am I even doing this? Like, why am I using Twitter this much? Because I'm not getting anything out of it. It's just wasting my time and I'm just being annoyed 90% of the time I'm on it anyway. I look at comments sometimes to see, because people will request shows and movies like in the comments. Or I have like a, a fan email address where people can like send me like fan mail, whatever, and then people will oftentimes send emails to that email address and say like, hey, you should make a thing about this. So you should do a thing about that or whatever. If you open up Netflix, they have like a top 10 thing where it's like the top 10 most popular things on Netflix right now. And it's usually things that are like brand new. And so I'll look at that and be like, okay, well, this is popular and it just came out and it looks like something that's kind of up my alley. Maybe it's a teen rom-com, maybe it's a uh, weird reality show or something. And I'll be like, okay, I guess I'll do this one. I pick shows kind of sometimes haphazardly. Sometimes it's all planned out. Like I look at what movies and shows are coming out. Back when I was kind of first blowing up on YouTube, whatever, like, you know, I would take a lot of requests from people about like, oh, you should do this show, do that show, do Gossip Girl and do, do Buffy and do whatever. But now over like three years later, whatever, since I've been doing that, it's like I've kind of hit all the big ones. And so now I just have to see like what's new and what's popular or kind of look back at like older shows that maybe, like I said, aren't that popular or well-known, but like I kind of want to make videos about them. And I kind of just have to balance that out. But the way my audience communicates that to me used to be mainly on Twitter, but it just got... Because like I would get people on Twitter who they would DM me. My DMs used to be totally open, which is not a smart idea. And so I would get messages from, it'd be like the same person. You know how like, like, like women will get like guys who just be like, hey, hey, hello, hey, hey, hello, like over and over again, you know? Like I would get the same thing, but it'd be like, can you do this show? Hey, can you do this show? Can you do this show? Hey, when are you going to do this show? Can you do this show? Like sometimes like three or four times a day, they'd like just keep going back and forth, back and forth. So it's like, th that used to be kind of how I, <laughs> I sort of got ideas for TV shows and movies, but it got to the point where I was just like, I would just dread opening up my mentions or my uh, DMs because it's like, all right, it's going to be like 25 kids begging me to do some random Disney show and then maybe like two DMs that are actually worth reading. So I just closed it all off because I was like, this is, this is not worth it. It's kind of less about what the audience necessarily wants and it's more about like I said before balancing business decisions versus creative ones tell me about your love for Riverdale my endless hate love for Riverdale <laughs> I mean I thought season one was actually kind of good like I if I had to rate I'd give it like a seven out of ten like I thought it was like good it's not like this amazing like paradigm shifting show but it was like that's oh, pretty good it's all right and then season two came in and just 
it just turned into this like garbage truck on fire just driving down the street you know and i was like okay and so that's when I made my first cartoon video because I was like, I was like, what happened to Riverdale? It's like a mess now. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then it's come to the point now where it's like, I actually do enjoy the show for what it is because it's just complete nonsense. And it's like, if you understand that, and if you if you go into it like actually expecting like coherent, logical anything, then you're you're watching the wrong show. But like for what it is, it's just like I'm just curious, like how how far can they possibly take it like what more can they possibly do like i was reading an article somewhat recently about how the showrunner of riverdale said that like riverdale's not going anywhere like it's going to be on tv as long as possible so chances are it'll be like the new supernatural where it's going to go for like 20 seasons or something and i'm just like okay so everything they've done so far they've had serial killers they've had like gargoyle kings they've had like Dungeons and Dragons that brainwashes kids. I've always seen that. So I'm like, okay, season 10 of Riverdale. Like what, just like time travel, like meteors, like what's going to happen? Like, like alien robots. Like I am, I'm here for all of it. Like people who've been with me since the beginning of my YouTube career, quote unquote, like they know that like, I'm just going to do every episode of, of Riverdale. Can you talk to me about the process of putting together a video and how it's different now than it was in the beginning? Oh gosh. Well, so the process now, it's usually spread out over about five days or so. The first day I will watch the TV show slash movie, whatever it is, and I'll write the script for the video. And that process, if it's an episode of a TV show, the process takes usually around two to three hours to get the script out. Because if it's like a half hour or like a 45 minute show, and then I constantly like have to stop and start as I'm watching and be like, okay, so here's a funny thing the character said. So I'm going to do whatever clip I show of the show. I'll stop it here and make the joke about what they just said. So usually in the script, I'll be like, I'll, I'll write the last line of the scene and then I'll put a dash and then I'll say like, okay, make joke about something. And I'll you know, write, make joke about better than It might sound like I'm, I'm padding the script out to fit a certain word count, but it's actually the opposite. I have to cut a lot of jokes because of like, usually there's so many things to joke about and, and so many skits and little cutaway gags that I write where it's like, okay, well, this script is getting way too long. I just have to pick the best ones or the ones that I think are the best at the time. And then usually I'll save the jokes that I cut and I'll save those for a later video. Anyway, so once the script is done, then I record the audio and then I have to edit the audio because usually I do multiple takes of the same line, like, you know, uh, intonate my voice differently or, or be like, okay, should I emphasize this word? Is it funnier to do it this way? What kind of voice should I, should I have my voice up at the end, have it down at the end, like things like that. And so then once that's done, then I take the audio visual clips of the movie slash TV show and I put them in where they're supposed to be based on the script. And then I put in the visual scenes. Once that's all done, then I, then I do the parts where my guy is sitting behind the computer desk and then I do the parts where my guy's putting at the whiteboard. And then I fill in everything else that I already have. Most animators, they use like animation software so everything you animate is saved as like a sequence. And that, that's a singular sequence that exists independently. The way that I animate is I draw every single frame as an individual image file. Then the next day, based on the schedule, usually like Wednesday is when I record and edit the audio. Thursday is when I put in all of the existing animation stuff. No, it's when I put in half of the existing animation stuff. Friday, I put in the other half of the existing animation stuff, plus write down what I need to draw. 
Saturday is the day when I draw everything and I draw it, I color it, and then I put it all into where they're supposed to fit. And then Sunday I finish everything else, which is I add in the backgrounds, I add in the text bubbles, I add in the sound effects, I add in the music in the background, I re-record any lines I need to re-record and usually finish the video up sometimes Sunday, but sometimes Monday, it is over to Monday sometimes. And then I'd like make the thumbnail, upload the video, deal with any copyright claims, email the sponsor, if there's a sponsor on it, and then be like, hey, here's the video. And then I usually take one or two days off and then repeat the whole process again. That is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever made a video that you lost a lot of followers from? No. I haven't actually lost any followers based on anything. I feel like most people get the joke. I kind of want to go back to the beginning where we talked about that fat kid mentality. Like, do you ever still feel that when you hit publish? I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily linked to the fat kid mentality, but you know, one thing that's very prevalent among any creative person, but especially on YouTube, is like that imposter syndrome. Where it's kind of like, like, why are all these people watching me? Like, why do they care about me? I'm just some like 32-year-old dude who watches Disney Channel movies. Like, why, why do so many people care about what, what I think about? zombies too or whatever but i mean okay so going back to what we talked about before about how like when you're a small creator you can do whatever and like everything's very different it's like you know as you grow as a small creator you sort of get this like ego boost a little bit where you're just like oh all these people really like they, they like me i must be really funny they're interested in me like i'm 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 a cool guy but then when you get to a certain point for me at least you know getting to one million to two million and almost now two and a half million where it's kind of like like the numbers are so big that they don't even really feel real anymore. I can't, I don't understand like what the numbers mean, like actually. And so I, I make a video and I put it out there and I think it's funny and it gets a million views or 500,000 views, whatever it is. And it's like, I see the numbers and I know what they mean, but like, I don't actually, it's, it's hard to even understand that like, oh, so 500,000 people or 1 million people in the world watched my video maybe it's linked to the fat kid mentality as well, but like definitely the imposter syndrome is a real thing. That's kind of like every time I put out a video, I'm surprised at how well it does for the most part. Instead of feeling like, Oh, like everyone loves me. I must be so cool. It really just fills me with like existential dread almost, where I'm just like all these people are spending their lives watching me watch Disney channel movies. Like what is happening? What do your parents think? Well, they think it's awesome. My parents have always supported my creative endeavors. Like, when I was in like middle school and high school, I wanted to be an author. So I was like, I was like writing books and stuff. I mean, just absolutely terrible, complete garbage. But like I was writing. Them. And then like, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an animator. I wanted to be a voice actor. I wanted to be all these things. My parents were always very supportive of that stuff. And so when I sort of fell into this job where now I get to be an animator slash comedy writer slash voice actor for a living, they think it's awesome. Did they get you any training? No. Well, I, I did a lot of community theater. I, I did all the high school musicals and high school theater. I was, I was one of those kids, you know what I'm saying? I did that. I mean, I guess that kind of counts as training in a way, or experience, I suppose. But I've never had any actual training in anything that I've done in my life, pretty much. It's all just kind of been me figuring things out and kind of failing until I just started to fail less, I guess. I'm interested in your Japan chapter, too. Can you talk about that? I mean, so I graduated high school early, like high school for me was so bad that I was like, you know, what I'm going to do, I'm going to move to the opposite side of the world, <laughs> get away from all you people. 
And so I worked over the summer. I saved up like 1500 bucks. And then I bought my own plane ticket. I paid for my own, like, they call it a guest house. I guess you would probably call it like a hostel or something. Um, I paid for that. And I just went over there and I thought I was going to be there for like one year. I was like, I'll stay in Japan for a year. Maybe I'll, I'll do something. I don't know how I'm going to get a visa, but I'll figure it out. And then I'll stay for a year and I'll come back and then I'll figure my life out. You know, like a gap year type thing. And then one year turned into three years and then three years turned into five years and five years turned into 12 years. And then that's when I finally came back to the United States. So from 18 to 30, basically my entire adult life uh, until recently was all spent in Japan by myself. Oh my God. Are you fluent in, in Japanese? Yeah. For the first couple of years, I just picked up some like regular conversational type phrases, things that I just like get by. And then I got to this point. If you remember back in like 20, 20, like 10, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, there was like this, this like swine flu that was going around. So at that time I was teaching English in this really small, like mom and pop, like English school. So what happened is, is like this, this Japanese woman and American guy got married and they had kids and they made their own English school. They got divorced. Uh, American husband went back to Japan. And so they had no one to teach English at the school because the, the Japanese woman didn't speak English very well. And then I found out about them having this school by someone that I met from this church that I went to when I was homeless. I ended up moving there. I, I lived in the school, basically. They had like a school slash hostel that they ran. And so I got to stay there. I still had to pay rent and stuff, but they let me stay there. Like they just like opened up a room for me. And so I was earning about $800 a month at that school. And I had to pay rent and cell phone bill. Rent was like $550 and then my cell phone bill was like 50 bucks. So I basically had about $200 left over for food and anything else I wanted to do. And then when the swine flu hit, I got it probably from a student or something. And then I had to go to the you know, hospital to get checked up. Now, Japan has universal health care, but you still have to like pay for part of it. And I was not actually part of their, their healthcare system at the time. I don't know why, but I wasn't. Anyway, and so normally a checkup and getting the medicine in Japan for, would probably cost about 30 bucks. But for me, because I wasn't part of their plan, it cost almost exactly 200, which as you will recall, is what I have left over for food and everything like that. So before my next payday, I ended up running out of all the food that I had in the fridge. And so for about five or six days, not a full week, but almost a full week. I had nothing but like tap water, ketchup and mayonnaise. And so that was the point where I was like, I should probably think about turning my life around. And so from that point on, I studied Japanese like eight to 10 hours a day, every day for like two years straight. And then I also have the certification for the certification that Japanese people get to show their own proficiency in the writing system of the language. That is an unbelievable story. And I saw on your YouTube channel that you made a couple videos about being homeless. Mm -hmm. How long were you homeless? I think it was about three weeks or so. It wasn't like a super long time, but I had gotten like roped into a Forex like Ponzi scheme company where I ended up losing like all my money and I couldn't pay rent for like two months. And so I got kicked out of my apartment which was way over. Like, I, I moved into that apartment thinking like, oh, I'm going to get so much money. I'm a 19-year-old kid working the Forex. What could go wrong? And then I ended up getting kicked out of that and I lived in a park. And one of the nice things about being a foreigner in Japan is like a lot of people will just like ignore you. 
Like they just pretend you don't exist, which is usually not a nice thing. But when you're sleeping in a park and people are just like, oh, whatever, it's a weird foreigner. I don't care. So like, thankfully, I didn't get, you know, hustled by anyone or whatever. Do any of your jokes stem from that? Probably to some degree. Like it's one of those things where it feels like it happened so long ago that it was kind of just like a whole other lifetime. Who inspires you? In what way? Comedically. Like you said, you're into other comedians as well. I feel like I've taken little bits here and there of every, you know, comedian I've ever like listened to probably. I mean, like, this is not good to say now, but like growing up, I really liked Bill Cosby, which is unfortunate, you know, never meet your heroes, I guess. And then I, I was like, I like Jim Gaffigan a lot, you know, and then in the same line as uh, Bill Cosby, I used to like Louis C.K. a lot. I like Bill Burr. Oh gosh. Uh, Whitney Cummings. I follow Whitney Cummings on Twitter. I always like to sort of find like indie comedians on YouTube and just kind of like watch their stand up and just kind of see how they do stuff. But like, I mean, obviously I don't specifically like steal jokes or whatever like that, but I feel like, you know, experiencing other kinds of comedy, you know, it kind of helps you come up with different ideas or like different ways of telling a joke that you hadn't thought of before. Every person is kind of an amalgamation of every person they've ever met, more or less. Like every single human being is like, they've absorbed pieces of personality from their family and friends and from celebrities, from TV shows, from movies. And then people kind of adapt that into their personality sometimes. And I feel like my comedy is sort of just a combination of all my favorite parts of every comedian I've ever heard, I guess. Is there any of your parents woven in there? Oh, definitely. I think my dad and I have a very similar sense of humor. His is more sanitized and mine's more like I don't want to say sophomore, but, you know, a <laughs> little more uh, say whatever I feel like, I guess. My dad is a big, like, joke teller guy. And uh, and like I said, they raised me on, like, comedians like Bill Cosby and, like, Red Skelton and people like that. And so they definitely influenced me in a, in a variety of ways. Maybe not directly, but being uh, in that family definitely put me through a lot of comedic influences. I have a question. You mentioned when you were talking about your process of putting together a video that if there were clips that were too long, they can get claimed. Yeah. Have you had any legal matters that you've had to address in any of your videos? On YouTube, there's a couple different avenues that companies can take where one is they can do what's called a copyright claim, which means that like they, they keep your video on YouTube, but the company takes all the money. And then they can do what's called a DMCA takedown where they legally remove your video from YouTube or they, they claim that they have the right to remove it. And then you can like do a rebuttal against that and whatever, whatever. I've never had it go that far, but almost all my videos get claimed at first. And then I dispute the claim. And then 99% of the time the claim is removed. But yeah, I've, I've never had any major legal action, but it's, it's definitely something that happens almost all the time. I just feel like that's something hard to learn. I have almost like 200 of these TV show review slash commentary slash whatever videos. And so it's like, I've done it so much that it's just like second nature. So when you dispute a copyright claim, you have to say like, this is okay because it falls under the legal definition of fair use. And they have to explain why. And I just have like this paragraph that I copy and paste every time because it's so common. Like every week I get a claim says, okay, copy this, paste this, dispute, copy this, paste this, dispute. But Two of the most egregious cases I've had is when I first did my video about Teen Wolf, MTV blocked it in America. They just blocked the whole video. So no one, no one in the United States could see it. And then they never removed that block. 
And then the other time was when I did a video about Charmed, CBS sent me a cease and desist email. And initially I complied with it, but then I realized now that like I legally I didn't have to because I have the right to do my video because it's transformative. So about a year ago, I put that video back up and I was like, oh, this is a video they, they told me to remove, but I'm not going to remove it. So, so that was something that was an adventure, I guess. I am curious too, since you've gotten some sponsorships, how mm. did you navigate that? That's an interesting thing because on YouTube, like no one ever talks about how much money they make on YouTube or how much money they make on sponsorships. So up and coming YouTubers have no idea how much they're worth or like how much is normal and how much is like them being screwed over. Like you have no idea because no one ever talks about it. And so initially I just kind of went with whatever they offered, which I'm sure was a lowball offer. But now I have a, a, like a representative company that all of these sponsorship offers go through them because they know how much I'm worth based on how many views and how many, whatever, whatever. And so they do all of that. And then they send me the offer where it's like, okay, so this company wants to do you know, a one minute sponsorship for this much money. Is this acceptable? And then they tell that to me that I'm usually it is acceptable because they've already done the negotiating for me. So now it's much easier. But when it first started out, I just, I had no choice but to just take whatever offer they, they gave me. Did you ever go looking for partnerships on your own? At first I did, and I never heard back from any. But then once my channel had sort of been going for a little bit, like once I did the Riverdale video and then I did like uh, Vampire Diaries and Thriller Liars or whatever, once I did those and my channel got up to like three, two or 300,000 subscribers, then they started coming in on their own. And then... For a closing, I was wondering, do you have any songs or like voices you could do? <laughs> I, I do a variety of voices in my videos. I mean, I guess they're all kind of extensions of me, but I like, what am I known for? I guess I'm known for like my devil's tango voice where I'm like devil's tango or I have my, my typical, um, it's almost like a Boston type accent, or like a New York accent where it's like, in one of my Riverdale songs, I think I did it where it's like, hey, Tam, how are we going to get more young people to watch our show? Simple, my boy. I'll show you how. So that's, yeah, I just kind of have a, I always wanted to be a voice actor because it seemed like such a fun job to do. And then I, I never got a chance to do it, but now I kind of made my own voice acting gig in a way. So it's like, I've always thought like, if my YouTube channel dies somehow, what would I do, right? And it's like, well, animation maybe but i have to like relearn from scratch like how the professionals actually do it because the way i do it is not the way that industry people do it and then i was thinking like maybe comedy writing but i think if i could do voice acting because i feel like my entire youtube channel could just be like a big demo reel you know and so it's like maybe i could get into voice acting that might be something i would do if my youtube channel dies because that's doing character voices and stuff is like a lot of fun for me and for most people i feel like and so that's definitely something I'd love to do, just to sit there in a microphone all day and be like, oh, welcome to the tavern or whatever, you know? Dude, I got to get you to say Better Call Daddy. In, in what type of voice? You pick. <laughs> well, it has the word daddy, so we got to be all, got to be all, <clears throat> see if I can. Better Call Daddy. I love it. I love it. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Oh, gosh. Anything I want to ask your dad? <laughs> I have no idea. So in the show Riverdale, the characters are supposed to be 15, 16 years old, but the actors are all like 23, 24 years old. So is it weird 
to have a crush on like these characters when the character is underage, but the actor is not. Ask him what he thinks about that. Ooh, I like that. That is something I have not talked about with my daddy yet. Okay, well, there you go. Oh my gosh, Alex, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was a fun time. Oh boy, let's go to Grandpa. This was a very interesting uh, conversation you had with uh, Alex. I think it was just a marvelous interview. And again, he was forthright and gave you a beautiful uh, rendition of his life and his uh, path to where he has come from and where he's going. Just a a marvelous uh, conversation, a real candid conversation. To start at the end first, where he says, what do you think about people in their mid-20s acting like teenagers? And the funny part is, is that I'm 64 years old and I try to keep up and act like a teenager too. So I think all of us find it very comforting and very exciting to be as young as we can, but hopefully that we have some wisdom and we know what we're doing a little bit where when we're young, we're experimenting and throwing things uh, against the wall, as he would say, and trying to figure things out. And as we get a little older, we can use those experiences to uh, hopefully make less mistakes. But I think all of us find that as the world continues to turn, it's a constant learning process, a constant process of pivoting uh, to the new things that occur to us in our lives. But having the background and the examples and the experiences that we get from not only what we experience, but the experience of others, those that take it in, I think adjust better. I think it's interesting to think about making new brain connections and trying things that we've never done before. I think it's marvelous. And, and, and look how it's the people that, that have, as they said when I was growing up, world experience. This going to Japan and having to survive in a whole other country away from everything that you know is quite an interesting perspective of life. Those children or adults that have traveled to different countries and had to learn different cultures and different understandings. People that have no money and that could be homeless, where they have to really concentrate on putting their energies towards survival and towards, he learned how to speak Japanese fluently by spending it eight, nine, or 10 hours a day because he had to make an adjustment to his life. He got some tremendous experience there. I like from the beginning of the show where it also, who you are and what you are happens at a very early age. If you're hanging out with people where everybody is overweight, as noticeable. And then all of a sudden he goes to a foreign country and he's three times the size of everybody else. He says, holy cow, I'm really enormous compared to everyone else. And maybe that also then stimulates you that you want to fit in wherever situation that you're in. It's hard to not want to then lose the weight yourself. I think that that has something to do with it. People don't realize when you run a business or you take on an endeavor, all of the details and learning experiences and positions that you have to learn how to do in order to be successful. And it's a growing and a learning process all along the way. And you make mistakes all along the way. But those that rise above the mistakes, the blocks that are in your way, those are the people that are able to be successful is because they know what good is, 
They know what bad is, and they know what hard work it takes to succeed. And it sometimes takes everything that you have, and then you still have to hope that whatever you're throwing out there will stick. And then as you grow and you develop, isn't it funny how the business takes you over? That just trying anything, you don't want to lose the popularity of your show. So what made you have that popularity is what you have to also stick with. You have to give now your audience what they want to hear and what they are part of your network because they are being enriched by something that you do. And if you don't do that part that is enriching them, why are they going to follow you? So you then become also a slave of your own success. Isn't that an ironic twist? Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>